Hey there, Knicks fans. How are you? It is, of course, your boy Jonathan Macri with you for another episode of the Knicks Film School Podcast. We are uh, keeping up with the tradition that I, I kind of like what we've been doing, having these just, you know, kind of casual Sunday morning basketball conversations. And I figured it's about time to have someone on who I have probably spent more time conversing about basketball with over the last two years uh via DMs or texts or whatever um, over the phone um, than just about anyone. And um, he's someone I'm really happy to have on because I personally owe him a lot in terms of uh, his help and kind of getting me going in this whole, um, I don't know what we want to call it, the, the blogosphere, I guess. Um, and that is my good, good, good friend, Tommy D. Um, you know him as founder of the Knicks blog. Um, he's, you've seen him on SNY. He's been a contributor to the step back. Um, he is an associate or a contributor for, uh, Blake and associates. He's all over the place. Um, Tommy, how are you, man? <laughs> J Mac, great to be with you on a Sunday morning. Thank you so much for the kind words. Um, it's going to be very difficult to follow up the great John Henson and the conversation that you had with, uh, with, with him. Um, but I'll do my best and you're right, uh, especially come winter time when, there's so much basketball going on. Uh, going on. I am. Uh, I am sort of everywhere. So. Well, actually, let me uh, really let me, appreciate it. Of course, no. I want to ask you about that first because you. So obviously, you watch every Nick game, and I also know from your your tweets, you watch a lot of other NBA teams as well, and you do a lot of scouting. Um, how, like, how are you balancing all this? I guess is the best question. <laughs> Well, you know, the uh, scouting, you, you can be on the road a lot. I, um, you know, I'm as a contributor, I, I sort of uh, can work it into the schedule pretty seamlessly. Uh, Blake and Associates, I've had a great relationship with Ryan Blake for the last decade um, through SNY. And uh, long story short, was he went on a uh, – we were introduced through a friend at the American Cancer Society called Anthony Marino. And Ryan was doing a uh, uh, bike ride to, uh, on his motorcycle. He's a big motorcycle guy, lives in Georgia. So when he was going to scout all the different games, he was, decided he wanted to go up the eastern seaboard and raise awareness for, for cancer and through the, the Coaches versus Cancer uh, campaign. So I was fully on board to support that. Um, SNY was very gracious to allow us to sort of link up and share content and you know build a really great relationship. And as it turns out, Ryan does a lot for the Portsmouth Invitational, which is the sort of small school four year. Yeah, sure. Uh, no, it's a good, mint it's a good tournament. Camp. It's a terrific tournament. Well, extremely well run. Uh, all the NBA executives are there. It's, it's right before Chicago and it's right after the, uh, the NCAA tournament. So it's really a, it's, I call it my Mecca. I'm like, I, uh, I, I take the journey down there. It takes me about 12, 13 hours. I usually break it up into a couple of days, make some pit stops along the way. That's a nice um, little drive. It's, you know what? I actually enjoy, I've, I've done the drive. I actually enjoyed the train more. Okay. Uh, I've, I went to school in DC and I have uh, friends who are still there so I can sort of do an overnight or even just a quick sort of lunch and then keep going to, uh, to, to Virginia and then you find yourself down there in Portsmouth, which is a, a U.S. Navy port. 
uh, and it's just a, a great part of the country. And um, the, the, the high school is the Church, Churchland High School. Uh, they put up a great event every year. And uh, Knicks fans would be familiar with Damian Dotson, uh, who won MVP there a couple sure, years ago yeah, before no, they, put, I remember they took him in the second round. We had uh, we had his trainer, uh, Chris Gaston, on um, a couple months ago, and he was talking about how that was really – not necessarily a coming out party for him, but it, the moment where he kind of solidified himself. Um, so, okay, well, that's awesome. I, I, of course, want to spend most of the time talking about the Knicks. Um, and in particular, I, so <laughs> it's funny for, it's weird because there's like, there's a 10 win team, which is obviously um, atrocious. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and yet, they're, the criticism for the team this year I feel like has been very pointed. Like there's been aspects of what they're doing that like everybody's kind of giving a pass because it's like, for instance, they're the worst shooting team in that the league has seen in three years. Like, but what can you do about that? Right. (laughs) It's like either have shooters, you know, I mean, there's some things you can do about it, but um, one thing that's gotten a lot of attention and I'm, I like try to chime in on this conversation, but I'm not nearly like the basketball guy that you are in terms of like really digging into the nitty gritty, like X's and O's stuff um, is like the offensive system that Fizz has run this year or, or in many people's eyes, the, the lack thereof. So, and now we've, the added layer of complexity is we got Dennis Smith Jr. Now, which is kind of like your prototypical Fizzdale point guard, at least it seems. So like, where do you, well, let me start just generally. Where do you fall on it, like, this year overall? What have you – have you liked Fizz's system? Do you think there is a system? Like, where are you at on this? There's definitely a system depending on sort of, you know, who he wants to get touches. Most really good NBA coaches, you know, get a, have a feel for who's in rhythm and, you know, who's ready to sort of come off a curl or you run horns or – I like when they run sort of the flex pin down stuff for – for their shooters, you know, for three. Last year, you know, Hornacek ran a lot of what when you, they, they tried to, you know, sort of coin as the modern triangle, which ultimately turned into a lot of, you know, Jared Jack, Porzingis, high pick and roll, where Porzingis would step, like, way beyond the three-point line. So you didn't need a guy that was going to be able to get to the rim at will. You just needed a guy to be able to get anywhere near the lane so that Porzingis could take, like, two, you know, gargantuan steps backwards and, catch the ball and make threes. You know, this year it's, it's obviously been a little different without him. Um, you know, your, your buddy, uh, Ennis Cantor early on was, uh, oh, know, we'll, was, was a, we'll get to Cantor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as you know, he, uh, he was a big part of setting a lot of screens and, you know, trying to get guys, uh, some space, you know, starting with, um, obviously Trey Burke, uh, and uh, ultimately Moutier. Um, you know, but I think what, what, the challenge for Coach Fisdale and, and his staff has been is and, and why fans, I think, are patient because they sort of get it. And, and they're sort of in the you know, they're invested in it now because so many people uh, on Nick's Twitter were like, you know, they need to lose. They need to lose, you, you know, bring guys in no long contracts, you know, so that they have to sort of see if they've been right based off of those assertions. Sure, so yeah. uh, Offensively, though, when you have guys who are on one-year contracts who are non-guaranteed for the next year, there's going to be a lot of isolation. There's going to be a lot of, you know, guys maybe taking questionable shots when maybe, when maybe a teammate, um, you know, could get a better shot. So, you know, when you play multiple guys who do that, if you play uh, Moutier, you know, with Burke, if you play Moutier with 
um, you know, uh, Hardaway, who who had contract, obviously, was, <laughs> guaranteed and maybe too much for a lot of people. But you <laughs> maybe, know, maybe in, a few dollars too much. <laughs> in in, I guess offensively in terms of structure, moving forward with Dennis Smith Jr. Now that you have uh, Jordan and you have Mitchell Robinson, you have that pick and roll element. You have that ability to get to the rim at all times. Now you've got to incorporate the third player, whether it's Knox. I like when he plays Hazonia like he did last night with Knox. Yeah, um, sort of creates more space and gets those guys out on the perimeter. But it's it's a night and day. So you, I think you'll see moving forward, you see a lot more space uh, and pick and lob, uh, which I think you've seen the first three games with those guys or four games. So I want to I want to touch on a couple of things that you said because I think there's a lot of interesting there. The fr- the, the first question, and I don't know that anybody could. No, the, like give a coherent answer to this, but I'll ask you anyway. Is and Fizdale even admitted to the fact he's like, I got guys that don't. I, he didn't say it in as many words, but essentially take shitty shots sometimes <laughs> because they fall back into the thinking of like, I need to get mine because I'm I'm playing for my next contract. Can you? Like, how much can you do about that as a coach in in his position specifically? Because, like, we've seen him bench guys this year, but I think the biggest critique of his, even above the offensive system, like, all year has been, like, he gave, like, the longest leash in the world to Tim Hardaway Jr. and to a lesser extent, um, you know, Trier and, and, and Burke. Like, is it... Was that more about showcasing Hardaway? Was that about, like, I'm out of options because there's so little offensive creation on this team? Like, where did you see that falling? I, I always looked at Hardaway Jr. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there was some showcasing there, and they, they wanted to elevate him as a leader um, of, of the team. I, I thought Hardaway, you know, he, he gets in his slumps, but, you know, he's he's a third or fourth option, I think, on a reasonably good team. Um, maybe more, you know, bench guy. He saw what he can do at Atlanta. Sure, sort of off yeah. the bench and and you know when he's part of a a five man defensive sort of shell structure um he's a capable defender you know he's not a great isolation defender which is the other side of the ball which i think is a similar point that you're trying to make on the offensive side which i agree with and and fizz i think he had some criticism early by saying listen if you make shots you're going to stay on the floor you know, sure, like, yeah. doesn't it doesn't matter how you make them just as long as you make them, you know, if they if they come in the flow of the offense or if they come in ISO, like with Trier, you know, you, you'll you'll get your minutes while the other guys will sit, which I think is why you saw Nilakina sit um, amongst other you know other guys. So I actually like that kill what you eat philosophy or eat what you kill rather. Six of one half of the other. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I took it. It's like fifty fifty on that one. I uh, yeah. I'm not a big big on the cliches, but uh, he, I guess his was you know eat what you kill, and um, I like that in this season because of what we talked about before. It is sort of a one year you know you hope next year is going to be completely different than this, and that's where you can establish more um, you know uh, a discipline. And this is a good shot. This is a bad shot. You know if you continue to do this, you're not going to get minutes, and then someone else is going to get minutes. Plus yeah. the ba- plus the rosters was really off balance based off of the mellow trade. So oh, yeah. there's a lot of square peg, you know, round hole situations. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the league, I mean, there are teams out there. I, I, I mean, it's not. I'm not saying anything revolutionary here. They've designed their entire player acquisition philosophy. Like you know, you look at Houston, you look at um, 
the Bucks, um, maybe a couple other teams. It's like I'm going to get my guy, and I'm just going to find as many guys who could shoot to put around my guy, and it's just going to open everything up. And and the fact that this team had, like, would you call anyone on the Knicks a plus shooter? I mean, I know there are guys who are shooting above league average, but like I. To me, this team doesn't have anybody I would I would use that term for. Would you? Uh, I I think Knox definitely is. You know, regardless of his numbers. Well, maybe he will be in time. I God willing, but in terms of just like this year. Yeah, you know, I I, I don't get caught up in the numbers with Knox just because you can see how easy he, he can he strokes it from oh, everywhere. Totally, I completely agree. That's what I've been saying all year. But anyway. Yeah, no, I, and and that's that's valid. I mean, he'll have games where his legs just aren't there, and he'll shoot. You know, the thing with with him that I've noticed is is he does miss a lot of uncontested shots, which, again, I think that speaks to the leg strength and just being 19 or 18. And, um, you know, he, he's going to have to just uh, learn to get his legs under him. He's a big kid. Yeah. And when you see him at 6'10", just make these bursts, at, you know, in transition and he's taking one or two dribbles up the court and he's finishing at the rim with contact. You know, he's a very, very gifted scorer. Defensively, obviously, he's got a long way to go. Um, but in terms of who I think, who do I think is like a real pure fluid shooter, Knox is, is fluid for sure. And I like Dotson off the catch. I think yeah, Dotson off the catch same is, here. Is, is elite. I just, it's been weird because he, it feels like he's been slumping, and I'm sure that I'm, I remember I looked at the numbers a few weeks ago, and it backed it up, and he's had some really off games. It's just it's it's weird because the way he shoots it, it looks so good, and I almost, I say I expect it to go in every time, but obviously you know it, it doesn't. Um, and those and those type of guys, they really depend are, are dependent on you know where the ball is coming from. Yeah, yeah. I say this a lot about being on time. Yeah, you're on top of the this ball all the time and be on target. You know, Moutier's not great at making those passes. You know, Trey Burke was was better. Um, I'm curious to see how good Dennis Smith Jr. is at it. Right now, it seems like he and Dotson, you know, have to work a little bit more together. It's, it's not an instant click. Whereas Nilakina is like, he's like really good at it. Well, so it's no it accident that the two of them, Dotson and Nilakina, on the floor together. I mean, despite all the issues that Nilakina has had, their their net rating on the year is still. I, is it just plus or it's like right about even? I mean, it's it's astounding. Um, <laughs> amazing what could happen if you have two guys that have kind of that symbiotic relationship um, and play defense. Who, who knew? I'm so, I'm so big into the five-man lineup uh, data. I, I did it all the way back um, when I coached in high school in like 2003, 2004. Like you, if you have the common denominator of people amongst the five who was, who's a constant negative – where the pairing's a constant negative, you know, then you then you know sort of where to attack it. Um, you know, obviously Dotson and Nilakina playing with Hazonia and Knox, either one of them um, is going to be a, an issue, you know, as a five-man group just because Knox and Hazonia, you know, sort of hurt you defensively. Um, and then if Cantor's the five, then defensively you're going to be um, you're be in trouble. But you add Mitch Robinson to that three, and then Lance Thomas comes in, you know, then you've got a different group. You may not have the best offensive group, but defensively you're going to be pretty good. Yeah, it, one of the things that I'm going to be interested to look at towards the end of the year is for the first 40 or so games, I know we're bouncing all over the place here, but the, the first 40 or so games, I would say, I would argue that their offense, you could say exceeded expectations. I think there was like 
maybe a 20-25 game stretch right when Moutier got the starting point guard job where they were, I want to say, in like the low teens in terms of, of offense, uh, offensive rating, mm-hmm. um, despite being the worst shooting team in the league. And then now you look back over the last, I just looked this morning, the last 13 games, they're 17th in defense. Um, so it just speaks to the fact like, yeah, they have guys that could defend if you put them together, and they have guys that could score if you put them together, but they, I mean, just, they don't have enough guys that could do both to, to make it work, so. Well, it's, it, it's interesting to that point about sort of the initial thoughts of Moutier versus Dennis Smith Jr., two very similar, uh, I'd say, skill sets yes. offensively, although Smith Jr. is a, I'd say, a superior athlete to Moutier. Oh, yeah. Moutier, oh, Moutier's yeah. sort of surprisingly this year become sort of this mid-range savant you know he was really good in the mid-range which a lot of people don't like that shot but if it's going in at a pretty good percentage i I think it's a good shot i don't mind it because again there's mid-range and then there's close mid-range and like he was hitting those shots from the close mid-range in the paint you know those like eight to ten maybe 12 footers and you me and uh who was it i forget if it was me i think it was me and jeremy cohen we're talking about he uses that big ass to like back the guy down, and then he creates that separation. I think that particular shot is sustainable. I mean, there's a lot else about his game that I that I don't think has improved. But anyway, um, well, if if you have the ability, as we were saying before, to quickly decide between that that shot and maybe finding a guy on the perimeter who's ready to shoot and hitting him in the target, you know that that's where you sort of say, okay, make that decision more often than not, and then make sure you can execute. If he makes that pass and it's off target and, you know, there's no shot to be taken, then, you know, you sort of pass on the two and you don't get the three, which makes it sort of a bad possession. So, and a lot of times where he would take the shot, nobody else would touch it. And, you know, even though it goes in, is that a great possession? Yeah. And that, uh, it's, I'm fascinated because I remember going back to, which is not that long ago, but when, when Derek Rose was here, I, having watched him all the way back to Memphis, he was such a dynamic, you know, guy to attack the rim. Almost in a sense, like you'd never seen it before. He was that explosive. Yes, I would to be agree. to be able to do that, and and you know, we've seen other players who are close, right? Like Marbury. I mean, you can go down the list. Baron Davis, you know, uh, um, Stevie Francis, and 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 et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but nobody nobody got up like Rose. I mean, other than obviously Russell Westbrook is kind of his own. And 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 Westbrook for sure. But it's it's like Westbrook falls into that too. When you get, but he's figured it out obviously because you know he's a high assist guy now. But when you can do that at will and you're so fast, like how do you slow yourself down? That's what I see with Dennis Smith Jr. Like he can get to the rim pretty much whenever he wants, whether it's in transition or whether it's in the half court. So it's like, why would you pass when you when you can do that, right? And yeah. if you miss, and if you miss that, is that a low percentage shot? Uh, I don't I don't know, but I it's just so it's almost like they're he's so programmed. Those type of players are so programmed to just attack the rim that how do you like downshift and then try to find people who are trailing who are sort of like well, way behind you? Isn't isn't that why? I mean, unless you're a prodigy like. Luka Doncic or you know one of these guys that comes along once every 10 years um if that isn't that why it takes it doesn't take a year to learn how to play point guard in the pros it takes at, at, at least two usually three four and it's like 
thus far with Smith Jr., it's like we've seen several things that we haven't seen all year with the Knicks. We've seen uh, got him throw. In my mind, I feel like there's been more kickout passes to corner three-point shooters. Now, God, those haven't gone down because, again, it all comes back to the fact that there's no damn shooters on this team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but we've seen a lot of those. We've obviously seen, you know, the free throw barrage from a couple nights ago. If he could figure out how to like, it's like right now he's a guy that is going up to, I use this analogy in an article I wrote recently, so I apologize for double dipping, but, um, a guy that's going up to the buffet table and he does, he like sees all this food and he like, he freaks out and he just starts like piling <laughs> shit onto each other. If he could figure out how to like portion it out and like what to take and when it's like, I feel like it could be really good, but. The practice lap, you got to go and just see, you know, a couple things. And then once you find what's the best, you go back and double down on that. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, the getting getting it back to Fizz, um, I, I guess there are people that have questions about whether he's the guy to take him to that next level. And to those people, I, I like when I ask my own answer, answer my own question. <laughs> go back and look at, like, Mike Connolly's one season under Fizz. Like, Connolly was obviously a great point guard before Fizzdale came along. But then... Fizz took him to just another level. Um, so yeah, he he really did, and 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 the antithesis in a lot of ways of a Smith, where he's not he's not overly athletic at all. I mean, he's a very he's an old, he's definitely a throwback, um, and you know he's obviously a really really good defender, uh, which certainly helps. Um, and that to me is. Uh, something right now that Smith has to get better at. I think two nights ago he gave up like 27 points. Um, you know, I think it was like seven of 10 from three. And then last you know, night he, he had that, the he got lost um, off ball when Danny Green went to the corner, which is obviously was probably the biggest shot of the game. So that's, yep. Then he, uh, Green hit a couple of those. Yeah. He, he, he does have that tendency. Uh, last night he gave up 18. Um, you know, it, it seems seven of 12 from the field. And four of eight from three. I'm I'm, I'm not. Those are those are not uh, numbers that I'm pulling out of my head. I actually just looked them up. But um, I want to say last two games he's given up 11 threes. Uh, you know, which is a lot. You score 31, it's great. If you give up 27, I mean, it's, it's not that great. No, so and, and he's got to figure that part out. And I, I think that's a that's a good transition to Nilakina. Um, I mean, look, it, it's a if he doesn't. If he doesn't start making shots, I mean, this is it's a it's not a conversation. I mean, I don't know how. Not to say that he can't have a role in the NBA if he doesn't make shots, but like to have a real discussion about what he is and what he could be, I think he needs to start knocking down shots. I guess my my question for you with him is if in a in a system where Fizdale essentially is, is like gives the ball to you know his creator and gets them rolling downhill and then everything flows from there. Do you see a way for Nilakina to have a role in such an offense other than a guy who's essentially go- or you know stand there and kind of wait for the ball? Yeah, I do, especially with Robinson, you know. Like I I think and even Jordan now, you know, Nilakina does have that pick and roll expertise at a young age sure having done it so much and he's starting to have fun now because in europe he didn't have a guy to, you know not now because he's not playing but i think you can see him sort of licking his chops with all this you know the pick and lobs yeah um, yeah which which is an element that you know he, he he sort of had with porzingis but 
um, in, in spots. Now it's now he can run at every possession. Uh, with that, I like sort of what Kadeem Allen showed last night with Smith, and that's sort of how I, I was, see I him was hoping playing. you would bring him up. Yeah, oh, and and I mean, can we start to talk a little more about how good the player development, uh, you know, the department has been with Westchester and and um, certainly obviously the Knicks. I mean, Allen, I don't think is going to be a piece moving forward. But here's a guy who didn't average uh, over nine points a game in college. Really? He was a three or he was a three, yeah. He played with uh, he played with Trier at Arizona, and. I think he played three years. He's he's old. He's I think he's twenty old. He's I think he's uh, twenty six or <laughs> for 25. this team he's a fucking senior citizen anyway. Yeah, exactly. He's about to collect uh, social security. But you know, um, they got him on the two way after they figured out the deal with Trier, and yeah, he never averaged more than nine two, points a game. He was just one of those like all around good Pac ten guys. Two and year he is. two year guy at Arizona, but I'm looking at it right now. His according to this at least his first year at Arizona it says he was 23 years old so I'm guessing he I maybe I don't know did he transfer in did he junior he, college yeah uh, JC know, okay sort of I, I'm pretty sure junior college but yeah he's he, he played there at an older age and and these like we go back to the Portsmouth stuff you know that's those those guys are very important in the NBA especially for depth and that's why I really like what they've done with the G League sort of keeping those those players you know, in and around the NBA so that they can come in, get yeah. an audition, and hopefully get a gig. But the way he plays, to me, is similar to what you hope Neil Aquina is once he gets his NBA body. Once he gets a little stronger, sure. you know, yeah. sort of becomes more of a, you know, his legs become a little bit stronger. You know, the way that they played pitch-catch, you know, just sort of worked off each other. I um, Oh, my God, you read my mind. There was that couple of minutes stretch there last night against um, – against the Raptors, where it was not only Allen and Smith Jr., but Trier also, the three of them in, mm-hmm. and there was a couple of possessions where it was like drive, kick, drive, kick, drive, kick. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it was the most beautiful offensive basketball that I've seen this team play all year. And that's when the ball has the energy, and when it finds guys like Knox, that's when the ball, that's when it just becomes sort of shooting off of a flow, and that's where Knox is really good. Yeah. Um, you know, Smith, I think, has that ability he has not really shown a lot being uh, in terms of being a really good off-ball player um but when you have a guy like Allen who's moving it then you know the thinking the thought process goes away and it just becomes you know you're you're in your rhythm and flow and and it's it's a beautiful thing to watch and I I do think Nilakina has that ability question becomes you know what 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 opportunities will present themselves and then who's going to be on the roster next year yeah and that's a good okay. You you gave the transition door to me, so I'll open it. Um, I the other conversation. I'm good like that. You're great. Like this isn't your first rodeo, Tommy. Um, I, the other conversation I was having with someone um, related to the Fisdale offense uh, discussion this morning on Twitter was like he plays a brand of ball, or he allows players to play a brand of ball that it seems like guys want to play in the league today and you know i don't know if you caught um i apologize i forget which which morris brother is on the celtics is that marquis or, or marcus uh marcus marcus okay i think no marquis i listen you it's literally you flip a coin and i i, I 
get those guys confused. I just know the crazier one is the one who just got traded from uh, Washington to uh, New Orleans and I guess now is maybe bought out. I, I forget. Um, I saw the Bill Simmons tweet about needing a drink after one of them <laughs> said that it's going to be a long year. Well, um, so, And I'm pretty sure that was Mark Keefe. So last night, yeah, I watched the – I retweeted actually the full interview he gave after the game, the Celtics game last night where obviously um, for anybody yeah, who – Marcus, like, Marcus Morris. Marcus. Of course I got it wrong. Okay. Yeah, I, listen, better than me. Um, <laughs> I – yeah, I retweeted the full interview he gave, a five-minute interview after the Celtics last night blew a 28-point lead to the Clippers. Um and that was uh, – also notably, Kyrie Irving went down with a knee injury um, before they blew that lead. And he basically – not basically. He said it's it's not fun playing basketball right now. It ha- and he said it hasn't been fun – I forget if he said for like – if he gave a, t- a specific time frame. But he basically said it hasn't been fun for a long time. And mm-hmm. we're talking about a team that I'm pretty sure they just rattled off like 10 wins in a row. And it's like, look, obviously – like the Spurs have won five championships playing a very kind of stricter system. Like the Warriors, despite the fact that it's kind of a weird thing because Curry is his own animal, they play a very, like, not strict system, but a system. Um, there are, I'm sure, another example or two that I'm forgetting over the last 20 years. Like, is there anything to this idea that players may want to come here? Not only for the market size, um, not only for the chance to be the guy that saves the Knicks, but like, when you come and play under Fisdale, it's like he's going to let you play the type of ball that like you want to play. I don't. I think there needs to be a very clear um, sort of understanding of, of what um, not only the regular season would look like, but also playoff stuff. Um, I let's let's go back to the Celtics. Sure. So the thing that I the thing that I said first and foremost before the season started, just based off a lot of stuff that I had heard like from people around the league was was Danny Ainge going to get in front of the Kyrie Irving situation? And that was before Kyrie basically made the declaration that you know he wanted to resign back with Boston, which I think we all thought not a lot of some of us thought that you know he was sort of full of not full of BS because he could still sign there. Um, but I'm, like if, I'm with you, man. I thought that was a max if, contract speech. I thought, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, if if he wanted if he were going to sign, then he would have signed that day, like. You know, the, the fact that um, the, the leverage that the Celtics have is that they can give him the fifth year is something that I don't think Danny Ainge necessarily wants to do. I heard Danny, Danny Ainge was very upset about him showing up at Game 7, not playing, um, to the point where, you know, he was almost, almost fed up maybe to trade him. Um, but there was so many question marks surrounding Hayward and sort of, you know, you can't make that trade and then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, be impulsive and do something else. But... My thought was, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to just let him walk away for nothing and not give him the fifth year? What if Kyrie just decides he's going to walk away anyway, doesn't care about the fifth year? That that was always number one storyline for me. And I think what we saw after the trade, um, with the Smith trade and, and getting the cap space, I, I think that was pretty strategic that all of a sudden now Kyrie, the next morning, is sitting at Madison Square Garden answering questions. And if hmm. I'm right about that, I think I thought that was genius for, on the front office's part. And, you know, then all of a sudden momentum starts to go the other way. And that's all it takes in an NBA locker room to sort of divide people and divide te- players. And, and in, a, in a sense, you know, I think that had already sort of happened with, you know, how Hayward has struggled. Yeah. And Anthony Davis with, uh, you know, those rumors and, 
Tatum and Brown and everybody being unsettled. Plus, it's Boston. You know, the Patriots just won the Super Bowl. So that place, you know, city literally is on fire. Um, you know, there's just a lot of elements there. The selling point to a Kevin Durant or a Kyrie, come here and change the way that this this organization is perceived. They just the, the Rangers just had their 25th anniversary. Yeah. You know, I don't know if the listeners are really big hockey fans, but, you know, the Mark Messiers, the Clyde Frazier's, the Willis Reeds, you know this, the Jeters, the Tom oh, Seavers. In, incomparable. Incomparable. And that and that that job opening uh, is here based off of that Porzingis trade. I mean, if you think about it for a second, John Starks, like, is deified, deified in this city. And this is a guy who... If he goes five for eighteen in Game Seven mm-hmm. of the Finals, they win the championship. All right, and and this guy is treated as a god. And it's like if you think about what would happen if someone ever actually, you know, I, I think that's real. Um, but I I also I think I think it and and Han. I feel like Alan Han has kind of said this, so I'm going to steal his point. I do feel like it has to be about basketball too, though, doesn't it? For sure. You know, because it's like... For sure. You know, and that's... I think there have been some mistakes. And I want to say, was it the LaMarcus Aldridge meeting that the Lakers had several years ago where they basically pitched him... It was like a marketing campaign in his free agency meeting. And he's like, you're not going to talk to me about basketball at all? Like, these guys, you know, these guys want to know that they're going to be able to be, be successful. Which is why, to really bring it full circle, you know, there's talk about like... Yeah, the Knicks should go out and win, you know, one or two games the rest of the year. I'm like, no. Like, I want to see them win. Because right now, the Hawks are the fourth in the fourth spot in the lottery. They have 18 wins. So, if you assume the Hawks are going to lose literally every game for the rest of the season, which I don't think is going to happen, the Knicks could win seven more games um, from here on out. And that would mean they'd go, what, seven and uh, twenty seven or something so that in and of itself is probably a tall order and guess what you you do not hurt your chances at zion williamson one iota i want to see them go out and i want to see them start to make take some of these close losses and turn them into you know close wins and i think they're going to get a chance to do that over the next two weeks they're playing some bad teams um how do you where do you come down on that would you rather get the most the, not the most lottery belts. That's a wrong way to say it. The the top spot, so you don't you can't drop lower than fifth. Or would you be okay with winning some more games? Well, considering what is it, you know, fourteen, thirteen and a half, fourteen percent. Even if you finish even. in yeah. the in the in the top four or top three, it's top you know. three get fourteen percent even at the top. Basically, the top three spots get the same odds for the top four lottery selections, and then the only difference is that the worst. You can't drop lower than fifth. Second worst, you can't drop lower than sixth. Third worst, you can't drop lower than seventh. And it's a 52% chance that you're going to be in the top four, even if you have the top four worst records, right? If you have the worst – yes. If No, sorry. If you have the one of the three worst records, it is a it is a 52.1% chance – we're going to get technical um, – Okay. That you're gonna have that you're gonna get one of the top four picks, and then it starts to slowly decrease from there. Like if you finished with the fourth, so actually, you know what? I misspoke before. I I, I was speaking as if Atlanta had the fourth spot. They don't. It's Chicago. 
So if the Knicks won their last, let's say, six or seven of their last games, they would probably jump up to the fourth spot, which would mean they dropped from 14% chance of Zion to 12.5% chance of Zion and a 52% chance at a top four pick to a, doing some quick math in my head, 40 Seven forty-eight percent chance of yeah, yeah at a top 48. four pick. So, let me ask you that question: mm-hmm. Would it, would it, would a one point five percent less chance at Zion? Would it be, would it be worth it to you if this team actually showed some significant competence down the stretch? Well, I mean, last night I thought they showed significant competence, and they lost to basically Danny Green hitting big shots. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I, if I, I mean, I can watch those games all night long and you're going to win or all year long and you're going to win some of those and you're going to lose probably more of them just based off of a talent thing. Yeah. To answer the Zion question, you know, just let that play out. At the end of the day, it's a, you know, if you're in the top three, which probably will happen, you're still talking about a coin toss that you're going to finish in the top three. And then it's only, like you said, it's only 13 or 12 something percent that you're getting number one overall. Yeah. And by the way, I don't know if you saw the Duke-Virginia game last night. I watched most of it. R.J. Barrett is also a franchise-changing player, and I've said that for you a long time. You think so? Nothing, 100%. And, and here, there's there's a lot of different factors there. I mean, he, he fits the NBA game. I, I haven't studied the NBA game as long as I have and, and sort of no, having an understanding of the differences between that and college. They're significant. And it, what's, what's funny to me sometimes is a lot of the, um, you know, the experts who, who talk about the draft, like if one – I remember the Duke-Syracuse game, like Barrett had a bad shooting game, and they were like, oh, you know, John Moran just jumped ahead of him. And I'm like, what are you, I'm like, what are you talking about? The, the fact that Syracuse played 2-3 against the McCameron Indoor without their point guard, really uh, – Jones, it, it, it means – it was so meaningless – that I just I couldn't believe the the overreaction to it. Uh, you know, Syracuse played a, obviously a, a college style of game that um, you know caused Barrett to miss open shots, but Barrett also probably just missed some open shots. He didn't miss them last night, by the way. Yeah, and no, he was you know he plays he can play three positions, he can guard three to four positions. Uh, and listen, I, I don't know the, the the all of the history of Team Canada basketball. But I could tell you that they've never – I'm pretty sure they've never won an international tournament at the amateur level when, when he led them to the FIBA tournament uh, and, and beating the Team USA and then ultimately winning the gold medal, which I think speaks a lot to me because, as we know, Canada and basketball are not <laughs> – I mean, it's not hockey. So, yeah. Um, but to the overall point, if you, get, if you find yourself in the top two – Top three, you're going to be in a good spot to get a player who can change the franchise or be the cornerstone of a deal with, you know, with New Orleans. Uh, then it comes down to, do you would you trade Zion for Anthony Davis? I got that question. I get that question all the time. The leverage in in, in having Zion in that trade is that you probably don't have to give up all yeah. of your young assets. I, I was uh, whereas you probably have to give up another one if it's Barrett. I was about to say. It would be so interesting to me that that discussion would be so interesting to me for two reasons. One, if you if you have Zion on the table, and I'm I'm actually I'm gonna go. Let's say for argument's sake, Tatum is like he's okay for the rest of the year. He's fine. 
Like, you know, they win a playoff series. You know, let's say they get bounced in the second round. He's good. He's their second best player after Kyrie. Um, if you're in New Orleans and New, or- and New York at that point is like, yeah, it's Zion and um, the, you know, one of the future, you know, they start with the top 10 protected Dallas pick and they're like, you know what? Fine. Take the unprotected Dallas pick. And, mm-hmm. but the problem there is, the salary is not going to work because Zion only for number one pick only stands to make nine million dollars. Um, but then again, you could make that trade if you make it, it, it. There's so many complications because if you make it after the money comes off the books for if it rolls into July, but then you take away some of your cap space. It's just it's 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 fascinating to me all the different tentacles of it. For sure, and you know you can always keep the pick and not being in a rush, not being in a rush to do that. And then see if you can make it, you know, mid next year after maybe bringing in more salary to make, you know, to sort of make it work. Um, Yeah, there's different ways to do it. But you don't, you can't trade away. I think it ultimately comes down to this. Unless you damn well know Anthony Davis is going to commit here for whatever, three or four years, you can't, you can't trade Zion then, right? I I would say that's a fact. You know, you have to get the commitment. um, Even if it's a wink, wink, you know. Well, I think the commitment comes from who's on the roster, and and I, I'll just go back quickly to the to the Tatum stuff. You know, Tatum is not the franchise changer that Zion is, and and I would even argue that Barrett could change the could change a franchise just based off of his style, the fact that he can handle it. Tatum is a great complementary player. You know, I don't know if he's a if he's a number one. I'm pretty confident that Zion and Barrett can be number one guys ultimately, and you know, I, I think. When I was sort of going through that draft process with with Tatum and Boston was talking about taking him, whatever they took him for, three. I thought that was three. Yeah. three. I, I thought that was really high. I you know I had him sort of in that seven to ten range, almost like you know Knox, mm-hmm. um, better player than Knox, I think, um, at least a little bit stronger, you know, in the legs and um, you know maybe a little bit better defensively off the bat. But uh, I just I don't. I don't see wings who can't handle it being, uh, and by hand, you know, handle the ball um, and make plays with the ball. I, I just not that Tatum can't, but it's like, you know, is he the guy who's going to get you, you know, seventy-five, eighty touches a game, and then what does that do for the rest of your team? You know, like I, I just don't. I see Zion for sure. So to, to answer the question, I, I think it's, you know, he is head and shoulders above. Tatum as an asset to a franchise who wants to turn the page on another franchise player. I just don't see Tatum being that guy. Yeah, no, I think that I think the 2017 draft is. I I, I, I hope somebody writes a book on this draft someday um, because I think as it stands right now, um, you could make an argument that in 15 years we'll look back and there could be as many as three guys that you could say should have gone first between Tatum, De'Aaron Fox and um and Donovan Mitchell. Well, I mean four if you well, count four if you count Frank Nilakina, but we'll you know we'll, <laughs> um, we won't go there. Um anyway. Uh all right, listen, I I have to to bounce in a few minutes. Um so I wanna get one last thought from you before you go and I, I would be I would be doing a, a disservice to to not ask you about the Porzingis trade. We, you've mentioned his name a few times. You've kinda talked about the trade a little bit um, it. I've I've defended I'll, it in retrospect. I but I there is a there is a there. I think there will always be a nagging part of me 
that is like you got you you let it get to this point like I, you know and like i don't know what like where do you where do you stand on that so you know i i've sort of i, I sort of held off over the years in in talking about you know sort of what i know about them and the, and the, and the and by them being like porzingis's brothers and 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 himself and um I can tell you as a fact, it got to the point where the organization just said, you know, we sort of have sort of had enough with these guys. You know, you don't walk into a meeting with Steve Mills and Scott Perry and say, you know, what we'd really like to do is um, we'd like to sign as as JB, who did a really good job talking about the one and one. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't go in there and say, you know, we'll do the one and one. Not saying that that's what they really, really wanted to do, but they definitely made it, you know, took the position of we want to own our uh, leverage in trades. We don't want you to just be able to trade us anywhere, which, you know, to an organization, that's, that's ridiculous. Like then, I mean, you can't start to, it's, it's just bad protocol to, um, you know, appease a player of that caliber, um, coming off an injury at that point. You just can't do it. If it's Durant, it's different. If it's LeBron, it's different. Like Steph Curry, it's different. Like Porzingis was just not at that point. And I remember a couple times being down on the floor, credentialed, before games, and I would see Giannis talking to the tabloid guys uh, that not named Mark Berman and or even Bagley, and just like the the politicking going on down there. I just remember thinking to myself, my gosh, this is this is not going to end well. And that was right before that. One of them was before the Thunder game. When um, Billy Donovan played Adams and, and Cantor together, and Cantor, Cantor treated Porzingis like he was 14. He had like 18 points, 15 rebounds. He had like nine offensive rebounds, just bullied him all over the floor. And uh, this was about probably three years ago now. I think it was his rookie year. Gotcha. Um, but long story short, like that led into Porzingis skipping out, not that game specifically, but like all this stuff just led into bad decisions, right? Skipping out on a team meeting was a terrible, a terrible decision that Giannis pushed for. And, and Porzingis or, and Chris just decided that it was, you know, he had to get out of there. Um, you know, it killed Phil Jackson. Like he, he really hurt him to his core that he did that because it got out to the media and it just looked like total dysfunction and it, it really ruined the culture. So there, there was so many of those examples. Some of them came out publicly, but you could just tell that um, it wasn't necessarily about the organization at all. And I think what Giannis really, if you go back and look in the article that he that he did, uh, he gave an interview a couple of years ago, and he talked about how MSG was filled up to the you know every single seat because um, because of Kristaps. I yeah, I think it was before. I think it was before last season. I want to say he gave that yeah. Preseason, you're right. It was like it was training. preseason before seventeen, eighteen, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself when I, I read that, and I just it hit me like right around somebody um, put it within one of the articles, like right around the trade, uh, right after the trade, rather. And I'm like, is this guy like is he serious? Like that this place is sold out. It's been sold out for like thirty years in a row. Like this place is always packed. It's not just about one player. You know, once once they start to get the stars in. Um, you know, I, I think that'll, I think the fans will come back, you know, the diehards will, will sure. really come back and, and fill the building up and not have it be so corporate. Um, but 
at the end of the day, what do I think about the trade? Going back to 2010, having lived all that from 2008 to 2010, and then the decision uh, with Eddie Curry's money on the books, you know, basically, I'm not comparing Porzingis to Eddie Curry. I, I can compare their salaries and, and how they were slotted. Yeah. Uh, Curry was like 10 million that they couldn't move. Uh, Chris would have had a, you know, 17 million cap hold, I think. Um, so to clear that space for two max in this, in this class, in this free agent class, um, and get back an unprotected pick and get rid of, uh, you know, Lee and get rid of Hardaway, uh, and their contracts, um, you know, and, and add a player like Dennis Smith Jr. I think it's a trade that they had to make based off of the fact that the conversations that they were having, um, you know, were, had just gotten to the point of just being contentious to the point where they wanted to take the leverage away from the front office. And you can't do that. You cannot, you cannot give in to those demands. Yeah, you just no, can't. I, I think it's, I think that's really well said. Um, and the one thing that, I wrote the night of the trade, and I believe still wholeheartedly, I think a second max slot is more appealing to Kevin Durant than Porzingis. And I, I don't know how, how what oh, other no way to say that. No um, doubt. And and that's and that's that would be the case if Porzingis was hunky dory and was in love with the organization. I still think that would be the case. Now, if he was in love with the organization, would you make the move? No, you wouldn't make the move because then. It, you're, you're still taking the chance that Durant actually wants to come here. But if if you're asking me which is more, which Durant would rather have, I'm going to end it with this, and and we, I really need to go. But I, I thought about this in like the shower a couple of days ago because I don't ever not think about the Knicks because I'm an insane person. <laughs> how crazy would it be? How crazy is this theory? Steve Mills signed Tim Hardaway Jr. To that deal because he thought in the moment that if he didn't do something like sweeping to impress Porzingis and his camp and show the show them that the team is going to be more about winning um, from here on in that it would only continue to deteriorate and like that was his ill-fated attempt at an olive branch. And was like, I'm not gonna sign an old guy. I'm gonna sign a, a young guy. Is that? Am I insane? I actually had this thought the other day. <laughs> so to go back in time, the, the long story, because I know you got to go. I know, I know that feeling, uh, and I'm, I'm actually getting it as well. Um, the to go back in time on the timeline. So um, Phil Jackson was having discussions with Phoenix and uh, other teams. To potentially, this was on draft night, to potentially yes. trade Porzingis, um, which set NBA Twitter on fire because Woj found it and, and, and uh, put it out there. Uh, so it got to the point, and that was during sort of the whole Phil, Phil Mello saga, which was a whole nother disaster, um, that, you know, the decision was made, however it was made internally, you know, that they had to part ways. And, um, you know, Phil. I, I, yeah with Phil. And I, and so, um, and I'll never forget the press release because the pre- press release didn't say he was fired. They said they just he parted ways, which, you know, that, that I thought that was pretty respectful towards Phil. It's like the Red Sea. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I, I, it was, I think Mel, the mellow situation took a big toll out of Phil and, um, on both sides. And, um, you know, and, and then Porzingis was sort of the icing on the cake on that one, him, t- him skipping out. But, um, 
I think the organization was just so, sort of in a, um, a, a pr- precarious situation, right? Because now here's here's uh, free agency, and, and they, it's sort of you know Steve's got to um, you know manage the whole process, which was obviously not not easy. But to um, to your point, I I think I think they did have to do something. Yeah, I mean you know that that would have been um, that would have been a tough sell. To say, you know, listen, we we really are, and you know, Phil's not here anymore. You know what happened, and uh, you know, so I think it it needed they needed to show some leadership. Um, I'm not sure that that was um, (laughs) the right. No, it was not the right move. We know it was was not not the right move, but but it wasn't a great and it wasn't but it wasn't a great free agent class, and they've already they already had sort of gone all in with with Lee and with no with Noah. you know, but what I think they needed to figure out immediately was how they were going to move on from Mello, and that's when he reached out to Scott Perry, and you know, I think the rest is history. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see how that history ends up writing itself. Um, listen, Tommy, man, this was a long time coming, and I had a blast. Uh, I appreciate you taking an hour of, uh, as you know as well as I do, these these hours on the weekends are valuable. Um, so no doubt. The fact that you took some time, um, I think. Uh, Knicks fans are, are really going to be thankful for it. So thank you very much for, for doing this. My pleasure, Jay Mack. And just if I can, very quickly at yes, the end please. here, at the end here, um, I really, really love what you guys are doing. Um, congratulations on all the momentum and, and keep obviously keep it going. You will. Um, I, I love the uh, you know the, the giving back and the, the charitable donations. We do that as well with the stuff through Patreon. And as I mentioned, you know we're we're really planning on doing a draft event. Um, that I'm partnering with uh, American Cancer Society. It'll it'll be in the city uh, on draft night, so it's still very early. Uh, so it looks like it's going to be at Stout. Oh, okay, um, awesome. Right near the we need we need some of the garden energy. Um, we did one a couple of years ago at Clyde's Wine and Dine, which was great. Um, you know, it's may, it may end up being there, but uh, still in the early planning stages. Would love for you guys to be involved and. Um, you know, we're, we're going to try to see if we can bring everybody together for uh, yet another great cause. And, um, you know, it'll, it'll be a first class event and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we want uh, the fans to be involved as well. And, um, really looking forward to that. So yes, I open invitation for sure. I know. And I, I, we've talked about it and I'm going to, I got to still talk to JB about this, this Porzingis trade and basically everything that's been going on has derailed us so much. From whatever no from whatever semblance of uh, normal operating order that we had, um, but it, regardless, if you're out there listening, obviously circle draft night on your calendars, and and um, I can tell you that um, nobody nobody gives it back um, like Tommy D. So um, try to make your way to be a part of that, and uh, who knows, maybe we'll, we will be too. All right. Sounds like a plan, dude. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, no, thank you again so much. We'll we'll talk soon. And obviously, everybody out there listening, um, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the pod. And uh, we will be back with you with another couple of episodes this week, including um, another very special guest that I'm very excited about. Um, So, yeah, leave it hanging, and we will be back soon. Bye.